Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, When Everything Changes. It's based upon the lectionary readings for February 14th, 2021, Transfiguration Sunday. This week, we celebrate Transfiguration Sunday, the apex of the season of Epiphany. Accordingly, our lectionary readings are full of strange wonders. Fiery chariots, dazzling clothes, magic mantles, blinding clouds. In our Old Testament reading, Elijah ascends to heaven in a spectacular whirlwind. In the Gospel, Jesus reveals his divinity on a light-soaked mountaintop. There is nothing subtle about either of these stories. After the hints and glimmers we experienced during Epiphany, today we stand with undimmed eyes and witness God's glory in its fullness. But here's the strange thing. These are not happy stories. As miraculous and light-filled as they are, each story conveys bewilderment and loss. Why? Because embedded in each is a threshold, a change, a boundary line marking a before and an after. And let's face it, we human beings rarely cross thresholds without hesitation. Sometimes we cross over in grief, already pining for what we're leaving behind. Sometimes we move forward in fear, convinced that whatever lies ahead will be beyond our capacity to handle. Sometimes we refuse to cross over at all until raw, wrenching necessity forces us to put one foot in front of the other. I don't believe that our hesitation makes us unspiritual or unworthy. It makes us human and cautious. But what this week's lectionary teaches us is that thresholds are essential to the life of faith. Risky as it is, crossing over is what keeps our faith dynamic. Without thresholds, without evolution, without change, we die. To appreciate what's at stake in this week's Old Testament reading, we need some backstory. In 2 Kings, Elijah calls Elisha as his heir and acolyte when Elisha is still a young man dutifully plowing his father's fields. Directed by God, Elijah walks out into the muddy fields, wraps his cloak around Elisha's shoulders, and calls him away to a new vocation. Seven or eight good years go by. During this time, Elisha becomes Elijah's shadow, following his teacher around out of love, admiration, and a keen eagerness to learn anything his mentor will teach him. Their bond is so strong and so well known that when the time comes for their parting, Elijah and the established community of prophets try in concert to help Elisha say goodbye. I need to take the next step of this journey alone, Elijah tells his acolyte three separate times in this week's reading. No, I will not leave you, Elisha stubbornly insists, clinging all the harder. Do you know that the Lord is about to take your master? The other prophets ask Elisha, hoping he'll accept the inevitable before it's too late. Shut up, is Elisha's gracious reply. Elisha reacts exactly as we might if we were standing upon a threshold. A threshold of vocation, of identity, of readiness, of relationship. Everything he has known is about to change and he's filled with pain and bewilderment. Can he trust his prophetic calling in the absence of Elijah's reassuring presence? Can he learn to decipher the voice of God on his own without an experienced translator at his side? Can he, a loyal and eager follower, become a leader instead?
I imagine these are questions we understand too well. Regardless of the particulars, we all know what it's like to get used to one way of being in the world, one way of knowing God, one way of practicing our vocations, one way of relating to our families, one way of doing church, faith, and religion. By the time Elijah's ascension draws near, his student Elisha is well entrenched in finding both his God and his purpose through his mentor. He can't bear the thought of having that safety net ripped away. Who will God become in Elijah's absence? Who will Elisha become if he is forced to step into spiritual adulthood, if he is forced to evolve? In this story, as in our lives, there is no way to avoid the thresholds that God appoints. The chariots come, the whirlwind descends, and Elijah leaves his bereft student behind. Looking back across the centuries that separate me from this fiery display of God's power, I wonder, what did the drama accomplish? The fire, the wind, the horses. Were the fireworks for Elijah, headed to God's presence with all its cosmos-altering wonders? Or was Elisha the one who needed to understand, right from the beginning of his career, that God's glorious unveilings come at a price? That epiphanies aren't be-alls and end-alls? That spiritual maturity requires crossing from certainty to faith, from light to shadow, from power to vulnerability? Elisha saw God's glory, that's for sure, but he also saw a point of no return, and his response was neither gratitude nor joy. He tore his clothes and grieved. I know few scenes in the Bible more poignant than the one that ends this story. As quickly as a divine vision comes, it departs. There is no afterglow, no surge of prophetic authority or knowledge as Elisha lies grieving in the dust. Only silence, only loss, only questions. Why? Because it's not the vision that saves Elisha. The vision is glorious, of course, but divine wonders alone don't save anyone. Elisha's salvation comes in the long silence after the glory. It comes when he still has no idea whether Elijah's double portion of God's spirit will rest on him or not. It comes when he chooses to stand up, shoulder his grief, take up his teacher's mantle, and cross the threshold into a new and unfamiliar life. It's clear from the details in this story that this choice is neither easy nor inevitable. But the decision Elisha makes bears witness to the faith epiphanies can forge in us when we make the hard choice to cross over. A battered faith, a trembling faith, a scorched faith. The faith that yields abundant life. The second threshold story in this week's readings, that of Jesus' transfiguration, is recorded in all three synoptic gospels. Over the centuries, it has steadily accumulated meanings, most of them thickly theological. Growing up, I was taught that the transfiguration is important because it reveals Christ's divine nature, foreshadows his death, secures his place to the stream of Israel's salvific history, and prefigures his resurrection. All of this is true and important. But for me, the story pivots around Peter, James, and John, the three terrified disciples who witnessed Jesus' transfiguration and just about lose their minds. Like Elisha, these friends of Jesus have spent years following him around, listening to his teachings and witnessing his miracles. By the time Jesus invites them to the mountaintop, they have good reason to believe they know their master. They know him as a teacher, a storyteller, a healer, and a traveling companion. 
His face, his manners, his mission, all are familiar to them. Familiar, endearing, and safe. But then, on the mountain, the unimaginable happens. Before their very eyes, Jesus changes, becoming at once both fully himself and fully strange. And suddenly, just like Elisha, Jesus' stunned disciples find themselves standing on a threshold. The man they thought they knew is suddenly more suddenly other and the path that lies ahead of him a path that must end on another high place a hill called Golgotha upends everything the disciples think they understand about Jesus in other words one phase of their life and their comprehension is ending what will it look like to begin another they have journeyed with Jesus the minister the rabbi the healer will they now journey with him towards the cross Or will they insist, as Peter briefly does in his fear and confusion, on remaining exactly where they are, sedentary and safe? On Transfiguration Sunday, we come to the end of another liturgical season. Having seen the lights of Epiphany, we prepare now for the long shadows of Lent. I don't know what thresholds we'll encounter in the wilderness. I don't know how God might invite us to change, to grow, to cross over, and I don't know what losses and sorrows those crossings will include. But if this week's stories bear witness to something true about the life of faith, then we can trust in the God who invites us to cross over. Resurrection is ours on the other side. For books this week, Dan reviews Gin Patrol on the Purple Line, a novel by Deepa Anapara. During her 11 years as a reporter in Mumbai and Delhi, Deepa Anapara won numerous awards for her work on how poverty and religious violence impact the education of children in India. In this, her debut novel, she writes the story that eluded her as a reporter, the 180 children who go missing every day in India. She lets the children speak for themselves, too, by having a nine-year-old protagonist named Jai narrate the story. In Jai's slum in an unnamed city, at the end of the subway's purple line, children have disappeared, first Bahadur, then Omvir and Anchal, and then still others. Have they been taken to a hospital or even the morgue after some accident? Do they run away to escape domestic violence? Were they kidnapped into forced labor, child pornography, prostitution, or the organ trade business? Some people scapegoat their Muslim neighbors, whereas others argue that, quote, you can't blame good people for evil things. Or maybe the jinn snatch them, those supernatural good and bad spirits that can appear as humans or animals and that may or may not exist. Jai appoints himself and two buddies as detectives to solve this community crisis. After all, he has watched hundreds of programs on TV like Police Patrol and Live Crime. They even have their secret signal. Through this tragedy, Anapara introduces us to all the sights, sounds, and smells of an Indian urban basti and what the plight of the poor is really like. The police and politicians are corrupt and indifferent. There's the constant fear that their neighborhood will get a visit from the bulldozer. Incompetent school teachers, chronic hunger, filthy sanitation, little electricity or running water, a tarp for a roof and a thick smog that blocks the sun, all these define the lives of the poor. Looming over their neighborhood are the glittery gated communities of the super-rich. Anapara raises questions beyond those of the missing children, in particular the lack of agency on the part of the poor. They have very little control over their lives. 
Who knows anything for sure, asks Jai's ma. One of the missing children wanted to believe there was a reason for everything. At the end of the story, one character sums up the novel, quote, Believe me, today or tomorrow, every one of us will lose someone close to us, someone we love. The lucky ones are those who can grow old pretending they have some control over their lives. But even they will realize at some point that everything is uncertain, bound to disappear forever. We are just specks of dust in this world, glimmering for a moment in the sunlight and then disappearing into nothing. You have to learn to make your peace with that. For films this week, Dan reviews The Black Church, This Is Our Story, This Is Our Song, a documentary that will air on February 16th and 23rd, 2021 at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. As I write this review, Raphael Warnock, the senior pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, where Martin Luther King Jr. and his father both served as pastors, was elected as the first African-American U.S. Senator from Georgia and the first African-American Democrat from the southern U.S. to serve in the Senate. And as he liked to say about his inspiring story, his mother picked cotton for other people. Warnock's story is just one of many reminders of what the country owes to black America in general, and in particular to the unique relationship between the black church and its politics. On February 16th and 23rd, 2021, at 9 p.m. Eastern, PBS will air its four-hour miniseries in two parts by Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr. of Harvard on the 400-year history and culture of the black church. The following is from the PBS press release. Renowned participants in the series include media executive and philanthropist Oprah Winfrey, singer, songwriter, producer, and philanthropist John Legend, singer and actress Jennifer Hudson, presiding Bishop Michael Curry of the Episcopal Church, gospel legends Yolanda Adams, Pastor Shirley Caesar and Bibi Winans, civil rights leaders Reverend Al Sharpton and Reverend William Barber II, scholar Cornell West, and many more. Through their interviews, viewers will be transported by the songs that speak to one's soul, by preaching styles that have moved congregations and a nation, and by beliefs and actions that drew African Americans from the violent margins of society to the front lines of change. For many, the black church is their house of worship. For some, it is ground zero for social justice. For others, it is a place of transcendent cultural gifts exported to the world, from the soulful voices of preachers and congregants to the sublime sounds of gospel music. For the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., going to church in America also was the most segregated hour of the week. The Black Church, This Is Our Story, This Is Our Song, will explore the changing nature of worship spaces and the men and women who shepherded them from the pulpit, the choir loft, and church pews. The churches are also a world within a world where black Americans could be themselves and the epicenter of the freedom struggle that revolutionized the United States across slavery and abolition, reconstruction, Jim Crow and the Great Migration, and the civil rights movement. Our series is a riveting and systematic exploration of the myriad ways in which African Americans have worshipped God in their own images and continue to do so today, from the plantation and prayer houses <coughs> to camp meetings and storefront structures to mosques and megachurches, says Dr. Gates. This is the story and song our ancestors bequeathed to us, and it comes at a time in our country when the very things they struggled and died for, faith and freedom, justice and equality, democracy and grace, all are on the line. No social institution in the Black community is more central and important than the Black church. 
Throughout the series, viewers will witness much of this world expand out to politics, culture, and education. As churches are born, denominations are fractured, and leaders are made and critiqued in their quest to bring the word to the world and the world to a higher ground. At once a liberating and traditional center of power, the church in Gates's telling is at a crossroads today, torn between social issues and justice, human rights and inequality, secular and spiritual trends, the past and future, prompting many to wonder whether the churches of their parents and grandparents have become closed off to the most important issues of the time. The black church has taken people from the valley to the mountaintop. And as some of the most influential black voices today reflect on the meaning of the church in their lives and to the country, the series will contemplate where the promised land is for this generation and the next. And lastly, for poetry on this Transfiguration Sunday, The Valley of Vision, taken from The Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions, edited by Arthur Bennett. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me into the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for February 14th, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.